Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner of ACG Analytics. The following podcast is a lightly edited version of a policy call we held. We will now proceed with the call. This is David Metzner, the Managing Partner of ACG Analytics. Welcome to our weekly macro phone call. This follows our macro note that comes out every Tuesday morning. If you're not receiving it, please reach out to research at acg-analytics.com to follow us on Twitter for more timely insights. Today's call will be chaired and led by Chris Zerwinski, our Senior Policy Analyst, our Special Advisor, Bart Oosterveld, who joined ACG Analytics from the Atlantic Council. Also on the phone today is John East, our head of research, and we have Brian Dean, who leads our LATAM research. With that note, I'd like to turn it over to Chris. There's a lot to talk about today. We've got developments in Europe. We have President talking about China this morning. So it is a macro period, sadly. But please, uh, Chris, take it away. Thank you. Thanks, David. And thanks, everybody, as always, for joining us, including our team here at ACG. I want to bring in John East first. As always, I like to start at home in D.C. It's been an interesting period because, you know, we've been juggling getting lawmakers back into the city because of the virus itself. number of developments this week, and the most important would be the fourth coronavirus relief bill known as the HEROES Act. This week, the Democrats in the House came in and released their bill, very expensive, over $3 trillion. John, maybe you can give us a little bit of insight into what's in it before we go into some of the procedure as to will this actually be made into law. It's an 1,800-page bill. I've gone through parts of it, but who knows exactly everything that's lurking in there. But writ on high, there is $500 billion for state government, another $375 billion for local government, another $20 billion for the territories, a lot of which goes to Puerto Rico. I think it's $10 billion for Indian reservations. So there's all, there's like a trillion dollars there for state and local governments. That it really sticks in the craw of a lot of Republicans. There's $100 billion for education, whether that's colleges and universities or whether it's primary care or, or high school. There is $175 billion in healthcare-related funding, $75 billion in housing assistance. We put out a note on a large part of the, of the housing title yesterday, and there is $25 billion to bail out the Postal Service, $10 billion to more for the Small Business Administration to make emergency loans, $1.5 billion for broadband, and there are a lot, there's a lot more, too. But those are the, the major components. There's some food assistance and other things. Uh, do you think that then, considering the fact that what you just said, this is not going to be law in and of itself, let's say the Senate and the White House agree that, yes, we are going to need another bill, let's say that's in three, four weeks from now. Is this bill used in a way to say, okay, look, here are these large buckets that were included in the HEROES Act, the, the Democrats' wish list. Let's bring over you know, a couple of these issues. You know, our, portions of this going to form the baseline for whatever the Republicans try to push eventually? Well, I'm not sure if I'd use the term baseline, but I don't think you're going to get a product out of the House that doesn't address a lot of these concerns. And it's true that Republicans in the Senate and the White House in general isn't in favor of so-called bailing out states. But I think
think that they do recognize that state and local governments are having a revenue issue. The question is to what extent state and local governments should have to live with the revenue issues which they have and to what extent that there are some expenses more or less directly related to the pandemic that maybe the federal government can help them out with. But yes, I think that this is a marker of where the House is. It's not going to become law in its current form, but this is where negotiations are going to start, even if the final product looks very different than this. Looking at the timeline then, when would you expect the Senate or White House to, you know, say, okay, look, we've we've waited long enough to see where the obvious shortfalls are and where help is needed across the country. It's time for us to pass another bill. That is a very good question. So my, I've anticipated that we're looking at the first week of June or so, but as states reopen and the majority of states are in some form of reopening, not necessarily the majority of the population, but the majority of the states, there's less, we'll see where we are, because to the extent that most Republican lawmakers are not from the coasts, and they represent a portion of the country that has been hit less specifically from the pandemic and which is opening sooner. The political will to negotiate with the Democrats on the Republican side decreases by the day. I do still think there's going to be a deal, but a large part of the country is back and working higher than expectations in three weeks, I think that that gives Republicans more breathing room to keep the negotiations prolonged. I think that moving out of the D.C. legislative picture, the big item of this week and really the last couple weeks has been the resurgence in negative tension in the U.S.-China bilateral relationship. This morning in a in an interview with Maria Bartolomo on, on Fox Business, that the president himself said several different negative comments, among them that, you know, he doesn't want to reopen the phase one trade talks. That makes sense, obviously. Why would he do that? At this point, he would lose leverage. Another thing he said was that he doesn't want to talk to Xi anytime soon and that he's very disappointed in the Chinese reaction. However, at the same time, he has acknowledged because of this pandemic, it's been difficult for China to to make purchases under a phase one trade deal. Now, if we're looking at the entire bilateral relationship between U.S.-China and particularly over the last two years, something we've talked about often here at ACG Analytics have been what are the release valves and where are the pressure points. And so, i come back to you, John, real quick, just because some of the pressure points so far have come outside of the executive and have come from Congress. There are a number of pieces of legislation that are out there right now in Congress. Do you think that any of these pieces of legislation, for example, some related to sovereign immunity, stripping China's sovereign immunity, or this piece of legislation that Lindsey Graham released this week, which authorizes sanctions on China if it fails to provide a basically an accurate accounting of the outbreak? Tom Cotton has put forward additional pieces of legislation, some related to like a military buildup in the region. Do you anticipate any of these actually being able to to pass into law? Well, you know, I think that a lot of these are messaging bills. I don't want to underestimate the ability for any provisions, particularly that target China, but particularly provisions that tie repatriation of businesses and capital and whatnot to tax incentives. I think those are more along the lines. But I think some of the more punitive things, the, the stripping of sovereign immunity, although I will say 
the limited stripping of sovereign immunity is, I think, on somewhat shaky legal grounds, but under international law. But it is picking up steam among lawmakers. But I still regard these things as messaging bills, sort of like the Hong Kong called Democracy and Freedom Act that Congress passed, but really has no teeth. But shall we say, you know, insulting to the Chinese. I think that things are more symbolic for the most part, but I would but if there is something that would pass, I do think it would be incentives for U.S. companies to reallocate their capital back to the United States. I completely agree with that. But one of the other pieces of legislation that has received a lot of attention is the Uyghur human rights legislation. And I think that McConnell himself has said that he might bring that up for a vote soon in the Senate. Human rights is another one of those areas that is more of a stick in the eye as opposed to, you know, something that's going to precipitate the full breakdown in the relationship. Can I say that you brought up one other interesting point, just if, if we're talking about, you know, legislation that's going to incentivize companies to repatriate certain pieces of supply chains or, or parts of their business back to the United States, another interesting component of, of that is Trump's move this week to block the thrift savings plan from investing in China. I think that that type of, I think that that type of action is something that we could potentially see more of. And I think that the administration itself is continuing to look at other ways of limiting U.S. companies from from investing over there. I know that they've looked at the accounting practices of Chinese firms listed on our exchanges. And even this morning, Trump said that it's something that he's very interested in. But outside of that, then we have the big component of the relationship, which continues to be the phase one trade agreement. David, we talk a lot about the purchases here, at least to me anyways. I think it's hard to imagine the Chinese finding any way to make up the $77 billion that they're supposed to make in purchases under year one of the phase one agreement. What, what say you on that? I would say that it's both technically impossible for them to execute the phase one agreement. The core of the agreement is $200 billion in, in increased purchases over their 2017 purchases. And March, ex- U.S. exports to China were down 17%. So in order to meet to to meet that goal, they have to start importing $20 billion a month. Now, there is a pattern here. It's very interesting. The Something that's very dear to the president's heart is coal miners. West Virginia, southern Ohio went strong for Donald Trump in 2016. Chinese should know that, but when you look at the statistics, Chinese imports of coal for steelmaking, something we have a lot of, is up 90% from Australia and 2.2% from the United States. That does not show, in, in my my view, an intent to seriously execute the agreement or to try to have the kind of dialogue that, with, with Washington that they should be having. Now, we saw some. There were some purchases of soybeans last week. I mean, there was a good phone call between, was reported as positive between Mnuchin, Lighthizer, and Liha last week. So our analysis is that the relationship is too important for either side to completely blow it up. So everybody, I think both sides know that, but we'll see a continued deterioration. And then I think a much larger cliff as China uh, becomes an issue during the campaign. One, one thing, just to add another data point on your purchases comment, you know, on top of coal, we talk about soybeans as being really the main product in the agricultural relationship between the U.S. and China that they're trying to beef up in order to make their, their agriculture commitments. You know, you've seen China also increase its imports from places like Brazil of soybeans by by a historic sum. 
And so, those, again, that's the type of thing where that's something you could easily buy from the United States. Why don't you just do it if you were serious about making those commitments? Now, on top of that, David, you brought up one other issue there with U.S.-China that, that I wanted to touch on, too. We saw earlier this week Trump extended the executive order barring U.S. companies from buying from and sending products to Chinese telecommunications companies. And that obviously digs into the Huawei's ETE connection, something that we've been talking about for a long time. While that extended that into 2021, at the same time, we're coming up on this deadline on the temporary general license for Huawei. And, and I continue to believe that commerce is likely to extend that license. It's something that we've seen along the lines of the negotiations for, for many months and over a year now. You've seen escalation in one area only to be followed by a light easing in one other area. I think that this is something that is pretty easy for the administration to do. He extended the, the executive order into 2021, but at the same time, he's going to basically negate some of, its, some of its teeth by extending the temporary general. That's something that we're watching. I want to move into Europe and bring part into the conversation. Last week, we talked a lot about the German Constitutional Court's ruling on the ECB bond buying programs. Maybe you could provide us a little bit of an update. Do we have any insight into how the ECB plans on handling its response? Thank you, Chris. So uh, there's been a number of public statements and by both board members of the ECB, uh, Christine Lagarde, the head of the ECB, and, and German politicians. So we're starting to gain an understanding of what the response will look like. Initially, many on the call will have seen that the ECB stating that it was undeterred in its mission to do what is needed to prop up the European economy and would, would continue to implement measures as, as needed. The market, while it initially responded by sending Italian yields higher, then calmed down quite a bit after those statements were, were made. I do think you know there's a clock ticking here. The, the German court gave three months for a response to be provided. How this will play out legally, basically the Bundesbank, in terms of its participation in these bond-buying programs, finds itself in a conflict of law issue that, that's quite serious. It has now become clear that the Bundesbank will provide the response to the German constitutional court. So the, the way legally they're attempting to thread the needle is that the ECB cannot respond. It doesn't recognize the court as having jurisdictions over its uh, operations, and it will send the Bundesbank to uh, provide a response on its behalf, uh, probably to the to the German parliament, the Bundestag. Yeah, I spoke to a member of the Bundesbank board this week who actually spoke to the, the presiding judge. The judge evidently said the Bundesbank hasn't argued very loudly before us. Or, uh, he was in a sense of being surprised. And, you know, my context said, look, at, I mean, the, the one is what's the Bundesbank doesn't want to blow up Europe. So even though in their DNA and their heart of hearts, you know, they're against any type of QE, upsetting the, the precedent of, of trying to force the ECB to answer to German constitution. The, 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 the conclusion is, you know, once again, that, that there will be no severe reaction out of Germany. The, the Bundestag, their parliament, doesn't take radical, aggressive views. Part, let me ask, how are the Dutch reacting to uh, the Italian situation and the need, the Italian call for increased capital? You and I agree we're not going to have corona bonds. I think Macron was shown not to be able to close that deal. Merkel has agreed to increase increase form financial aid. What, where do you, how do you see the North coalescing around a, a solution for the South? Thank you, uh, David. You know, obviously, we talked a few weeks ago how that the Dutch, about how the Dutch government had led the opposition to debt mutualization, and including corona bonds. It took a very aggressive tone that was not very well received in, in Brussels, basically did 
uh, did Germany's bidding. And my understanding is that the, they they are still working towards a one to one point five trillion euro support for the economic reopening package that is in the works. I think we have stated our expectation. I think there's no reason to, to change at the moment that that'll be funded mostly out of the EU budget and with increased borrowing through the EU budget and some grant funding. Over the past week, there was a renewed interest in the package that had been agreed a few weeks ago that includes low conditionality loans from the ESM for up to 2% of GDP, but that, that's a drop in the bucket. It's unclear who will use that and, and for what purposes. The, the bigger package is, is still at the work, so we'll, we'll probably come over the summer. And Bart, while I've got you here right then, can you perhaps give us an update on the heat map? It's a great product. What are you seeing with the new numbers this week in terms of the virus? and its impact on some of these EM and frontier markets. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so the, the heat map is available on, on the AC Analytics website. It ranked the risk of a severe economic disruption to 75 uh, emerging and frontier markets. We, we updated with high frequency. What we see is the effect of the Fed and others' efforts to uh, provide dollar liquidity to the world are, are starting to show up in terms of acute financial distress related to currency moves is, is dissipating pretty much across the board. The other thing we're seeing is big distinction in, in the cases and the, the impact on the health system uh, across these 75 countries. So there's, as a general rule, we can say that the growth, so the number of daily new cases has peaked in the vast majority of countries, but there are big countries where there's still, you know, even though growth is past its peak, the number of cases still continues to grow. Some that stand out, you know, with more than 200 cases per 100,000 population in the region are Peru and Panama. Just for for reference, the average number of cases in the world uh, per 100,000 population stands at about 50. It's 400 in the U.S., 350 in Italy, just to, to name some uh, well-known reference points. What uh, what I think we're also seeing is some countries emerging kind of positively compared to the, the peer group. Would you say that, you know, you put out a note earlier this week talking about Colombia, and I know that they've the government is one, under undergone a, a pretty extensive process to pad their own finances in order to make it through this. Do you consider them to be a positive story? Let's talk about the pandemic first. Their peak in new cases appears to have happened about 10 days ago, so early May. Like everybody else, their their fiscal situation is heavily affected. So they, they were predicting 2.5% fiscal deficit for the year, roughly. Now it's predicted to be 6%. Some things they've done is refinanced their multilateral and bilateral obligations at, at very favorable rates and through very sophisticated debt management, reduced the pressure on this year's budget in terms of external debt payments uh, coming due uh, significantly. So that uh, some of the things that the debt management office has done, because everybody's very focused on, on the pandemic, some piece of good news also just haven't trickled through, or haven't been picked in the financial press. Late April, Colombia became the third country in the region to join the OECD after Mexico and Chile several years of being a candidate member. Colombia also notably hasn't needed balanced payment support from the IMF, that it secured a two-year extension of its flexible credit line of about $11 billion, which is undrawn. So it seems that they, as and when the economy opens back up, the country has allowed some sectors already to, to reopen. They seem poised for a fairly uh, robust recovery. Excellent. And, and I want to bring in Brian Dean, our, our LADTAM partner as well. Just You talked about, well, we just discussed, I guess, Colombia, but talking about other countries in the region that are announcing the reopening plans. Mexico stands out to me. I think that we're near 
if I if I know the numbers correct, I think we're near the peak of virus cases there. And AMLO did announce his reopening plan. Brian, can you run us through some of that and perhaps the renewed push to expand what is deemed an essential industry with regards to the U.S.-Mexico supply chain? Thank you very much, Chris. Yes, Mexico is at the tail end of its peak right now, according to the Mexican official. Accordingly, the president, AMLO, on Tuesday announced a system for the reopening of the economy and a withdrawal of the social, gradual withdrawal of the social distancing requirements. It's a system that involves stoplight-type facsimile, four different colors. Each of them will determine a different level of activity that's allowed, going to be implemented on a regionalized basis because that's the way the, the pandemic has manifested itself in Mexico. And that's beginning immediately. Interestingly, the areas of the country that will be experiencing the immediate lifting of some of the restrictions on business activity happen to be those areas of the country that have the least manufacturing and production input into the Mexican economy. Uh, the, the initial states, for example, represents about 23% of Mexican industrial production. So the, the areas that are hit hardest that will be last to experience gradual withdrawal of the prohibitions uh, are those areas around Mexico City and in the, in the Central Valley of Mexico and on the border areas where industrial production is at its highest. That having been said, AMLO and his government did finally announce that the auto industry as well as construction and mining as essential industries effective May 18th, coming right up in a few days. This is very important because it allows the conversation between the North American partners and USMCA to quit discussing the push for the synchronization of supply chains and get into working on the technical logistics and mechanics of supply chain management, and that's something that will benefit all parties involved. And, and Brian, yeah. then, so just with that being said, you consider the July 1 start time for USMCA to still be on target then? It appears to be on target. I mean, there's some discussion of moving it back to August. A couple of weeks ago, there were, there were voices saying that, that it should be pushed toward the end of the year. But the consensus seems to be put by returning back to the July 1st implementation. And there are a couple of sectors in the United States that are continuing to lobby for a delay. But it seems that all parties are intent on, the, on July first as being the, the, the day. Very good. Well, thanks for that. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.